0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Samzell, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio one for the history books the markets get the message about tightening finally ukraine stalls the mighty russian military and a black woman takes a big step toward a seat on the bench of the highest court in the land this is bloomberg wall street week i'm david weston this week special contributor larry summers on being caught between the rock of inflation and the hard place of recession
3: i share very much the chairman's hope that a soft landing is possible but I don't think it's something we can count on.
2: And Candace Browning of Bank of America on Corporate America coming to terms with zero emissions even in a time of war.
4: This really is a movement. I mean, I was surprised.
2: We saw history being made this week when Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson took a giant step toward the Supreme Court.
1: U.S. Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson is set for questioning by a Senate committee. She's told the panel she's an independent thinker who decides cases from a neutral posture.
2: Now, there may be some who claim without a shred of evidence that she'll be a rubber stamp for this president. I have four words. Look at the record.
5: I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath.
2: President Biden traveled to Europe in support of the coalition arrayed against Russia.
0: President Biden feeling uh, questions from the media, they're talking about staying
2: united with Western leaders.
5: Do you think uh, that Russia needs to be removed from the G20?
2: On the latter point, my answer is yes. If that can't be done, then we should ask to have both Ukraine uh, be able to attend the meetings. As Russian forces stalled in Ukraine.
1: Ukrainian forces
4: have essentially stalled the Russian advance and Moscow's words on diplomacy are not really being matched by actions on the ground.
3: Ceasefire is not a way out. The way out is immediate uh, withdrawal of all the Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. There is no other way out.
2: Fitcher Jay Powell finally got his message through to the markets.
4: What would prevent you from doing a 50 basis point move in May?
2: What would prevent us?
4: Yeah. Nothing. (laughs) Um. The story's changed in a big way in the first quarter, Tom. This is not the year people were looking for just three months ago.
3: If someone had told all of us, everyone
4: that watches the market, that the Fed would be aggressively hawkish, I think we'd all be surprised.
2: And if you had any doubt at all that the bond markets got that message, just take a look at the 10-year this week, having its worst week since 2016, winding up on Friday just a tad under 2.5%. Not to be outdone, the two-year was down more in a week than it had been since 2008. And adding to the risk on sentiment were the equities markets, where the S&P 500 and NASDAQ were both up just under 2%, while that faithful safe-haven currency, the Japanese yen, had its worst week in over two years. Welcome now our experts. Chris Aylman, CIO of the California State Teachers Retirement System, and the CIO of Nuveen, Sarah Malik. So, Sarah, first of all, uh, congratulations on becoming CIO. I think it's the first time since you've been back on Wall Street Week. That's great to see. Let's talk about this relatively risk-on week we saw this week. Uh, What do you make of it, given the fact that we are at war?
5: Well, the Fed's trying to create a Goldilocks scenario by engineering a soft landing The equity markets are buying it and the bond markets aren't. We're watching three key things to monitor whether we're going to get to that, and that is the Fed movements, inflation, and geopolitical issues. Uh, The equity markets like what the Fed said in terms of becoming more hawkish because they're catching up to what's going on with inflation, getting more credibility around that battle. The equity markets like it because it means we won't have runaway inflation. Now, when it comes to inflation, the key question is, can economic growth be strong enough to overcome inflation? we think it can geopolitical risks are here to stay with russia though we see overall impact on global growth as moderate but areas that we're monitoring are financial channels commodities and the impact on the european union all of that together still leaves us moderately bullish for the year
2: so chris sarah says the effect on the markets will be relatively moderate uh, from the war the war is not going the way we thought it would we thought it would over quickly one way or the other it isn't are you more concerned about long-term consequences
6: yeah, exactly, David. Sarah, I would have to say, uh, I think the markets actually have their heads stuck in the sand. The bond market, they're awake and they're paying attention. I mean, if David, as you said, twos are back to, to 228. Uh, there's a 30 basis point spread between twos and thirties. That tells me the 30-year bond knows it's going to be a flight to quality because it's a safe haven in a war, which is the word you started with this. Equity markets shouldn't be rising they go up at the beginning of inflation, and Sarah, I give you that. But I think long-term, the bond market's got this right, and the stock market's got this wrong. It should be more cautionary, and it should be more worried about inflation long-term.
2: So, so Chris, as you imagine, manage that really substantial portfolio out there at CalSTRS, what do you look at in the yield curve, if anything at all? We heard from Jay Powell this week, and he said, look, we sure we pay attention to everything, but it's really the very, very early part of the yield curve which we po- focus on, not, for example, the twos-tens.
6: Jay can't control the twos tens. He can talk it up and he can jawbone it. Uh, you guys have a wonderful montage of a whole bunch of Fed governors who all talk about the next meeting. That not only is fifty basis points not off the table. I think one of them at the end says, "Could be zero. It could be twenty-five. Could be fifty. Could be a point." I just think we have to recognize we're in a rising rate environment. Sarah's right. At the beginning, uh, stocks do quite well at the beginning of inflation period. But this is not going to go away. This isn't, remember, transitory. It's not transitory. Inflation is going to be around. And this war impact is going to be felt.
2: Sarah Malik of Nuveen and Chris Aylman of Cal will be staying with us as we turn from the economy and the Fed to what a portfolio manager is to do about them. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Still with us are Chris Ailman of Counselors and Sarah Malik of Nuveen. So we've talked about the economy, we've talked about the Fed, we've talked about inflation. Let's talk about what that means for a portfolio manager. Chris, let's start with you, because I think of you particularly when we talk about inflation, because you've got a lot of pensions. Are you making enough money right now? Stocks are down this year. Bonds are down this year. Are you making enough money to pay those pensions?
6: Well, when you look at it on an average, not on a one-year period, David, no. The market's behind us, so we're having a tough time. But we do invest in longer-term assets. Real estate has held its value Uh, Private equity has done really well, mostly because of the technology and the medical booms that we've seen this year. But then we also invest in inflation-sensitive assets. We've got uh, timberland. We've got agriculture. We've got commodities, which have been up over 29% so far this year. So the key is diversification. We don't put all our money in one basket. We don't put it all in domestic stocks. We spread it across in a number of different asset classes. That way, that we can weather years like this, and then also make money in the positive years.
2: So, Sarah, how do you manage in this environment? Certainly, there's a lot of volatility out there, a lot of uncertainty. I've read a number of analysts who say, you know, you got to get conservative right now. You got to go large cap. You want to start with small cap. You want to go uh, uh, value rather than growth.
5: You well know, we also go publics to privates at Nuveen. So, in an inflationary environment, we like equities, we like commodities, and also Real assets and within equities, we're being selective. But you know, companies with pricing power, we are seeing that from energy, which has a very tight cycle and producer discipline, which is very important. The producers are not just pulling, uh, just focusing on volume growth; they're returning cash to shareholders. And then we like large caps, large cap growth stocks, really beaten down this year, economically resilient. These are companies like you know, a bellwether stock like Microsoft, which has you know such strong growth characteristics going forward. Exposure to what we view as the next digital revolution, which is the metaverse. Um, And then also within fixed income, it is challenging, but there's areas that you can look at where you can find quality or also um, higher yields like emerging market debt, floating rate loans. And we're definitely erring on the shorter duration side with fixed income, given what's going on with interest rates.
2: Sarah, with a big growth stock like Microsoft, are you not worried about it's fully valued?
5: you know the growth stocks are actually pretty beaten down this year considering their structural growth ways. we found them to be quite interesting another name that we like in technology is applied materials we're fans of the semiconductor cycle semis are getting larger and more complex they require more equipment applied materials is in the sweet spot of tsmc and intel two of the biggest foundries a lot of demand for their products and we think that's a very well positioned company going forward
2: Chris, tell us about bonds in this environment with rates going up. Why does it make sense to be in bonds at all?
6: No, a good challenge. But I think just like Sarah said, we're looking at the short end. We're looking at private credit, which is variable rates. So we have opportunities to invest there. There's still a few credit opportunities, uh, but it's a challenging. We have the lowest weighting in fixed income that we've had uh, in the history of CalSTRS. Uh, So it's a challenging environment. And if you're in a 401k investor, it's really hard because all you really have is stocks and bonds. You don't have a lot of chances. Maybe if you have a real asset Uh, option in your 401k. Take advantage of that. But you've got to open your account, take a look at it and diversify across. As I said at the the earlier segment, David, I think that, you know, the Fed's making it clear they're raising rates. Sarah said it herself seven more times already this year and maybe more. So that that 225, 230, uh, uh, two year is going to go higher. And that's going to work against you. I mean, so far you have a, a negative 11% return in bonds this year. That's a tough way to go. So you got to diversify away into other types of
2: assets. Sarah, as you manage your portfolio, we just heard from Chris that seven times. Actually, a City came out on Friday of this week and said eight times. Uh, can the economy withstand that? And I guess the reason I ask that as a portfolio manager, do you have to be hedging against the possibility of recession, actually?
5: Well, if you look at the last couple of cycles, the Fed, the equity markets peaked at around 9 to 14 rate hikes. So I think, you know, we can handle multiple rate hikes. Uh, You know, one question for us is, though, it has to make a dent in inflation or we're going to have other problems. Uh, You know, we have to watch the hard economic data. I think the Fed's doing the same thing. They've said they're data dependent. Can the economic data hold up during all of these rate hikes. I think initially we're seeing signs that it can because, again, stagflation is a period where um, we have low employment and lower economic growth, and we're just not really seeing that yet. We still have a very strong economy here. And so, you know, we are not initially worried about these rate hikes, as I said earlier. We wanna be careful about leaving money on the table in the early cycles of rate hikes and just because the yield curve is inverting in certain places.
6: Sarah, you said the word that keeps me up at night, stagflation, because what I worry about is that if if the inflation is coming from external sources like the war in Ukraine and the lack of fertilizer, the lack of wheat, higher prices to wages because people are demanding it before they go back to work. That makes me worry that that economic growth is going to get squashed in this summer. The Fed can't fight that kind of inflation with just higher rates. And we end up, as you said, in stagflation. I know for my portfolio, that's the worst situation of all. There's almost nothing we can find to invest in to make us money in, in a stagflation environment.
5: If you actually look at the '70s uh, during the period of stagflation, uh, you know during the early period it was a very challenging period to invest. But later on, actually, that was when equities and real assets actually performed pretty well. So you, know, you can find period during that cycle. You can actually have times where you can make good returns on your investments. Um, so, I mean, I agree it's a concern out there, but it's not something that you know, we're worried about right now. Also, within inflation, you know, I think the Fed's seeing the same thing where there's noise in those numbers from uh, tighter supply chains to the war that we're seeing. These things are not necessary things that are going to remain permanently. So what is that true baseline inflation number when we're through this? That's what you know we're not clear on. I don't think the Fed is yet. And they have the ability to pull back on rate increases um, once we start to see what inflation really looks like from our past some of these unusual uh, occurrences that are happening.
2: Uh, to, to, Chris, to wrap up this investment cycle, let's talk about something you referred to earlier, and that is the energy transition. Uh, what effect, if any, will the war in Ukraine have on that? Because we saw just this week, for example, the United States now commit to a huge new supply of LNG, liquid natural gas, to, to Europe. What's going to happen in the energy transition in this world?
6: David, it's brought it to light that it's not going to be smooth, that it is going to be a difficult transition. I get a ton of pressure from teachers that want us to dump US oil companies. And now maybe they realize that, well, we don't want to be dependent on Russia and Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. It needs to be a transition where consumers change, utilities change. You know, the number one thing is how we generate electricity first and foremost. So we've got to find ways to have a thoughtful transition, and we don't want to be geo- geopolitically linked to one economy or one type of fuel. We want to be diversified. And so you know we've, we've got time of 20 years, but it has to start now,
2: and it has to be meaningful. Thank you so very much to both of you. That's Sarah Malik of Nuveen and Chris Elman of Calster's Great to have you both with us. Coming up, the SEC wants companies to disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. But what are they already doing to get to net zero? Bank of America has done the survey, and its head of research, Candace Browning, is here with the report. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this.
1: 5% APY Making your money work as hard as you do That's how you business differently Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank Member FDIC Only funds and envelopes earn APY APY can change at any time
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio getting to zero that's the goal that countries representing 88 percent of greenhouse emissions and 90 percent of gdp have set for themselves making progress all but inevitable that's according to president biden's climate envoy john kerry no president in the future
3: would walk into the white house and undo what is going on around the world this is bigger than the united states what is this response People all around the world are retooling.
2: And corporations are quickly signing up to do their part,
3: like BP's CEO, Bernard Looney. We will reinvest two pounds, more than that, actually, for every pound that we make. And the majority of that investment, the vast majority of it, will go into helping Britain transition to a net zero future. This week, the
2: SEC gave corporations a nudge, proposing new requirements that publicly traded companies disclose their greenhouse gas emissions. So now, it appears there's no turning back before we can go forward into a zero emissions world we have to know where we are right now and particularly where companies are in really being committed to zero emissions to find that out bank of America has done a comprehensive survey of thirty four hundred different companies around the world and here to tell us about what she found out we welcome candace browning she is head of global research for bank of america so candace thanks so much for being here what did you learn from your survey
4: Oh, David, we learned so many things. I mean, the first thing we learned is that this really is a movement. I mean, I was surprised, you know. In 2019, about 16% of the world's GDP, you know, by country, had committed to some sort of net zero plan. And today, just three years later, that number is 90%. And you know, this whole thing was really led initially by policymakers, right? But now what's happened is all these other groups have jumped in, whether it's activist shareholders or, you know, whether it's consumers who want to buy, you know, goods that they think are not, don't have a huge carbon footprint. Um, so it's all—it's it's shareholders. They've all jumped in, and everybody wants to get on this wagon. So the first big takeaway was that it, you know it's—it's it's a movement, and it's going to happen. And I think actually that the events between Russia and Ukraine are actually going to further accelerate this because Europe, you know, has to get off its dependency on hydrocarbons
2: how difficult is going to be because one of the things i really focused on in reading your survey was there are three different categories here of emissions and one of them is your own companies another is the people who supply you but then there's a third category that actually dwarfs the other two
4: Yeah, basically the first one is what you use to make your goods and and services and products. And then the second one is the the purchased energy, you know, the electricity that you buy. And then the third one is the really difficult one to, um, to measure, and that is really the carbon footprint of all of your suppliers. And it's estimated that that third level, David, is three times as big as level one and level two. In doing
2: your survey, did you get a sense of timeline for these corporations? If they're committed to net zero, how long is it going to take?
4: So what we found is that of the 3,400 companies, that 11 percent of them globally said they're going to get there by 2030. That's just eight years away. That number quadruples by the time 2040, 41 percent of the companies said that they would be there. And there are also some real differences by region. So if you look at Europe, for example, there 20% of companies say they're gonna get there by 2030. So they're far ahead of the rest of the world. In China, fully a third of companies don't even have a timeline. So there are big differences by region.
2: Well, talk about that geographic dispersion, if I can call it that. You talked about Europe, you talked about China. Where's the United States?
4: You know, the United States is just solidly right, um, right in the middle there. Uh, I think it's about I can't remember the exact number for 2030, but we're solidly in the middle and we've been accelerating uh our timeline.
2: Okay, we have a Wall Street we we appeal to investors, try to inform them. What's this gonna cost? What's this gonna do to revenue? Uh, the top line on the one hand, what's also gonna do to the cost line?
4: So what we found is that in general the thirty four hundred companies Analysts expected that revenues would decline about 5%. Now, that averaged from 0% to as much as 14%, um, depending on the sector. Uh, for example, energy companies, you would imagine, would have one of the biggest hits. So we think that there'll be a revenue hit. Interestingly, we also think that there's going to be a real pickup in research costs, so about $1.2 trillion of R&D will be spent, we think, over the next five years. And capital expenditures, we think, will be about $2.4 trillion over the next five years. So put it together, you've got lower revenues, you've got higher costs. It means that you're going to have a hit to operating profits, which we think will be down about 5% on average. So that sounds like a pretty grim picture. And you know, in the short term, there definitely will be pain. But there are going to be companies that are going to be beneficiaries of this as well.
2: Well, it's a fascinating study, as I say. I learned a lot from it. I really thank you for sharing it with us here on Wall Street Week. That is Candace Browning. She is head of global research for Bank of America. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back now, our special contributor here at Wall Street, Larry Summers. And Larry, you were at least perhaps a little bit in the news this week for one specific reason. We heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell at the NABE meetings down in Washington, and he went out of his way to sort of uh, correct the record on exactly how aggressive the Fed will be. Some people have said he was responding to some of your criticisms or what he said last week where clearly the bond markets didn't listen to him.
3: You know, I don't... I don't know whether I had anything to do with it uh, at all. I think he did signal more hawkishness, and I think that was very much warranted given the inflation threat. I do think there are a number of problems in Fed thought where they're advocating and making arguments that I don't think really stand up to economic scrutiny.
2: So let's take, uh, let's go through some of those arguments. One of the things I think I heard from the chair was uh, actually inflation is going to get relieved because there will be an expansion in the labor force. It'll relieve some of the wage pressure that you've talked about.
3: You know, an expansion in the labor force matters if it changes the supply-demand balance in an important way. But if the people all work, then it translates into more demand, offsetting the increase in supply. And the Fed's not forecasting any increase in unemployment. So with no forecasted increase in unemployment, I don't know why one would think that an expanded labor force would somehow be a reason why inflation would come down. It would only exert restraint on wages if it translated into higher unemployment, something the Fed is at pains to predict will not take place.
2: The uh, so second thing that we heard from the chair today uh, this week was, uh, in fact, that they are willing to go up to the neutral rate and above the neutral rate in the Fed funds in order to get inflation under control. Is that going to do it?
3: I think we have to be careful with that. Uh, in a sense, I think the Fed is doing assume a can opener economics. Uh, After the old joke about the economist when asked how to to get into a tuna fish can, uh, says assume we have a can opener. The reality is that the neutral interest rate is a real interest rate concept. It reflects the difference between the interest rate and inflation. What the Fed's doing is assuming their own success with respect to inflation, that it comes down to about 2%, and then saying that their interest rate forecast will represent a positive real interest rate and will correspond to their neutral interest rate. But it all depends on assuming their success. Markets are saying that real interest rates aren't getting anywhere near the feds estimate of the neutral real interest rate anytime in the next uh... five years and certainly that's what most professional forecasters are saying in terms of uh... their views about uh... inflation i don't think we're seeing the kind of increase in in interest rates that's usually necessary to go for uh... inflation i don't agree with uh... Republican economist John Taylor on that many things, but his Taylor principle that to stop inflation, you have to raise interest rates by more than inflation goes up, because otherwise the real interest rate is coming down, that's a valid principle, but not one that's yet been internalized in the Fed's forecasts.
2: Uh, third thing that we heard from the chair this week was he admitted, I think, that it's going to be difficult to have a soft landing. He, nonetheless, is confident it can be done, in part because it's been done before. There are at least three other instances people are pointing to, right? 94, 84, 69.
3: I don't see how anybody can regard those as very relevant uh, precedents. In none of them was the CPI at anything like 8% when the episode started. In None of them was the unemployment rate or the vacancy to unemployment rate in historically tight labor market territory. And in all of them, the whole point by the Fed was preemptive action to restrain. And that's what this Fed ruled out in its 2020 operating framework.
2: So Larry, are you confident that we know what it will take to get inflation down at this point? Or more important, does the Fed know?
3: Look, nobody knows. I certainly don't. I don't think the Fed knows. I do think uh, that it's likely to require significantly greater interest rate hikes than the Fed or markets are now expecting. And I do think that we need clear signals that we're prepared to accept some slowdown in economic activity if that's the price of reducing inflation. Otherwise, we're going to be making the mistakes of the 1970s that will ultimately create a need for a really catastrophic recession. I think that can be avoided, but it can't be avoided if we're counting on some kind of immaculate reversion of inflation or immaculate disinflation
2: larry as we speak that horrific war in ukraine continues and of course we're all fixated on the death and destruction but there are also economic consequences what do you see as potential longer range global economic consequences of what we're seeing
3: i fear and it's too early to know and we may never will never get the data to do a really accurate measurement but my fear is that there's going to be more death thousands of miles from ukraine because of the food price hikes food shortages and potential famines that are associated with uh, the loss of crop in ukraine and russia that that will ultimately be the cause of more death than what happens uh, in uh, ukraine that of course is not to minimize the tragedy in ukraine but it is to point up uh, the need for the world community to be focusing, even on it, as it focuses on Ukraine, to be focusing on the needs of developing countries broadly, the need for financing, the need for debt relief, the need for uh, food uh, allocations. I think this is a critical issue, and it could become a more critical issue depending on developments in the next few weeks.
2: We've had some people this week uh, predict perhaps we're seeing the end of globalization. Larry Fink, for example, from BlackRock said that uh, in the media. What do you think about that uh, as a possibility at this point?
3: We're certainly seeing the evolution of hyperglobalization. We're going to see more more emphasis on just-in-case rather than just-in-time. But I don't think we're going to see anything like the end of globalization. I think as long as there are smartphones, as long as there are video cameras, as long as there is uh, Zoom, we are going to see levels of interaction between countries that are greater than anything that was taking place uh, even 20 years ago. So. I think discussions of the demise of globalization are overheated. And I think they're even a little bit dangerous because they risk a self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: Finally, Larry, uh, we lost a true pioneer this week in Madeleine Albright, a scholar, a diplomat, the first woman Secretary of State, and I believe when she was appointed that position, was the most senior position ever served by a, a woman in the United States. I know you served with her. Give us your thoughts about Madeleine Albright, what she did, what her legacy is.
3: Madeleine was a special uh, person. She was a role model for uh, so many uh, women She ascended to the highest levels of power while always maintaining the highest level of decency, humanity, collegiality, kindness uh, to others. She showed uh, that you could be tough and generous at the same time.
2: Larry, thank you very much for sharing that with us. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. They say that war is politics by other means, but what happens when politics starts to look like war? American politics has always had a bit of an edge to it, going all the way back to 1980, when a moderator in a primary debate in New Hampshire wanted to turn off Ronald Reagan's mic.
3: I am paying for this microphone,
2: and it got physical at a news conference in Baghdad in 2008 when someone in the audience threw a shoe at President George W. Bush. So what if the guy threw a shoe at me? And of course, there was the famous confrontation between candidate Joe Biden and the woman who was to become his vice president in the 2020 primary debate. So that's where the, the federal
4: government must step in. That's why we have the Voting Rights Act in. and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of all people.
2: But we saw a political confrontation taken to a whole new level in the debate between two Republican candidates trying to win the nomination for the Senate in Ohio, Josh Mandel and Mike Gibbons, when they came about as close to fisticuffs as you can get on a stage on live TV. You
0: watch what happens. You watch what happens.
2: But then again, maybe they're following a more ancient tradition, one going all the way back to 1856 when Congressman Preston Brooks of South Carolina went on the floor of the U.S. Senate and took his cane to Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, nearly killing him, right in the middle of a speech, admittedly a somewhat lurid speech against slavery. And although we may have come to expect somewhat better of our senators these days, there's still always room in the government of Turkey or Mexico or Taiwan for a good old-fashioned brawl. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.